I sing of lesser things and things that pass away. When I've a friend like Jesus now to sing about each day, I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. To Him my praise I'll bring forevermore. His love beyond degree, His death that ransomed me, now and eternally I'll sing it more. I find no song that fills the heavens above. Should I not join their chorus sweet and praise the Lord I love? I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. To Him my praise I'll bring for Okay, you're dismissed. <laughs> that was quite a...
That was quite a production. Okay. All righty. Well, let's just see. We can't this right there. Let's move that right there. Okay. A little water. Oh, boy. All right. Well, um, no. Uh, if I if uh, if I do, I'll let you know. I think the Lord's going to support me tonight. <laughs> well, what a privilege and a joy to be here, and uh, you know, uh, it's a very sad commentary to say that there are so few uh, pulpits where. The truth of the gospel is preached without apology or excuse, and I'm I'm blessed and proud to be in a pulpit where that is what is done each and every Sunday, and each and every Wednesday. Um, I, for those of you who have heard me in the past or have been a part of my Sunday school, you know one of the areas of uh, study I have is the. Uh, prefiguring of Christ in the Old Testament, how we see Christ modeled in the Old Testament, the prophecies concerning him. And many of those prophecies are called typical, and which means that they are a type, or it is a picture or a portrait of Christ in the Old Testament. And so as we see those, uh, we it's exciting for us to realize that centuries before our Lord came in, uh, in his first incarnation on this earth, that it was prophesied so clearly and such a wonderful thing for us to examine. So that's the area that we're going to be examining tonight. Um, for Once again, for those of you who have been in my class, I, I, I know that uh, uh, my cousin, uh, his ministry uh, is a grace to you, and their motto is, you know, preaching God's uh, word, you know, one verse at a time. Uh, for anybody that's been in my class, I heard someone say the other day, uh, Mr. Turner's motto is preaching God's word one word at a time. <laughs> so, <laughs> because, yes, we are still in Genesis. Yes. Well, tonight, the title for this message is The Lamb. And we're going to be examining Genesis chapter 12, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles there. And it is... Uh, the Passover has just taken place just a matter of weeks ago. And uh, this is one of those messages that I delight in sharing um, because it is such a wonderful portrait. Once again, a word portrait, a picture portrait, an acting out of our Lord's uh, suffering and death for us and how much we we, uh, uh, we need to truly study our word and, and really know. But so we're looking at chapter 12 tonight, and uh, the institution and ritual of the Passover do provide us with a sacred and utterly remarkable prophetic portrait of the Calvarian sacrificial atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The importance the Passover prophetic portrait uh, maybe the importance of the uh, Passover prophetic portrait may be gathered from the frequency with which the title of Lamb is applied to our Lord Savior. 
The lamb is a title which looks back to what is set forth before us here in Exodus chapter 12. Messianic predictions contemplated the suffering Messiah that was, as Isaiah 53, 7 says, was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist recognized and hailed him, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, in John 1, 29. The Apostle Peter speaks of him as a lamb without blemish and without spot, in 1 Peter 1, 19. The Apostle John uses this same title at least 28 times in the closing book of our Bible, Revelation. So, Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, the prophetic forerunner of the Lord Jesus, Peter, a disciple and apostle, and John, the uh, 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 apocalyptic visionary writer of Revelation, all unite in employing the same term for our Redeemer, the Lamb. There are many typical pictures of the sacrificial work of Christ scattered throughout the Old Testament. Yet it is doubtful if any other one of them supplies so complete or such a many-faceted portrayal of the person and work of the Lord of our Lord Savior as the one we study tonight. The Passover sets forth both the Godward and manward aspects of the atonement. The Passover prefigures Christ satisfying the demands of God the Father. The Passover views Christ as a substitute for the elect sinners that, as Ephesians 1.4 says, He hath chosen before the foundations of the world. There is no vital phase of the cross in either its nature or its sacred results that is not modeled here for us in chapter 12. May we all prayerfully accrue and acquire and retain the lessons and blessings that come from attention to the details generously provided to us by the Holy Scriptures. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much for this privilege to be here tonight and to in a fellowship gather together and study your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would just tenderize those who are here tonight to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and that they would be sensitive to his prompting. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would hide, uh, hide the self-life of the one who ministers in the message, and we pray that you would be glorified and magnified in all that takes place here tonight. And in Jesus' precious name we ask these things. Amen. As we examine the contents of Exodus chapter 12, the first thing we notice is that the institution of the Passover changed Israel's calendar. Exodus chapter 12, uh, pardon me, Exodus 12, 2, the verse says, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. A simple verse, but, in, but incredibly and profoundly significant. Passover month was to begin Israel's year. Only from this point was their national existence to be counted. They had just spent over 400 years in captivity in Egypt, and yet the Lord prescribed that their history would begin here as a nation. The new year did not begin exactly with the Passover night itself, for that fell between the 14th and 15th of Nisan. 
Now, the Passover lamb was a prophetic portrait of the Lord Jesus, and the chronology of the civilized world is dated to the birth of Christ. Interesting. Anno Mundi, the year of the world, has been replaced with Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The coming of Christ to this earth changed the calendar. And the most conspicuous aspect of this is that our calendar today is not dated from our Lord's death, but is dated from his birth. The whole world reckons time from the birth of the holy babe of Bethlehem, and so it is that the Lord of time has written his signature upon the recorded calendars of time itself. But there is another application of what we have just learned. The Passover speaks not only of Christ offering himself as a sacrifice, a sin offering to God, but it also pictures us, you and me, the believing sinner, and models our appropriation of Christ's sin offering. The slaying of the lamb looks at the Godward side of the cross. The sprinkling of the blood speaks of faith's application. And it is that, and it is this which changes our relationship to God. But our appropriation of Christ's atoning sacrifice is not the first thing. Preceding this is the divine work of grace within us. While we remain dead in trespasses and sin, there is no turning to Christ. No, there is no discernment and no capacity to discern our need of Him. As long as we are lost in sin, we do not see Christ as a Savior. We don't even respect Him as uh, our uh, more than our atoning sacrifice, the very Creator of the world. I was telling my class this morning, we have to remember that there are two, there. The Apostle Peter in Acts three was preaching to a Jewish congregation. They had similar um, understandings, and they had a foundation that was the same. They had the Scriptures. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the understanding regarding God as the creator of everything. So when Peter was speaking to his listeners in Acts chapter 3, he was preaching about Christ crucified. And God's word tells us that to the Jews, it was foolishness. Excuse me. It was a stumbling block. And this stumbling block was difficult, but it was a stumbling block in Acts 17, Paul preaching to Greeks who did not have that foundation, who had a completely different worldview, when they heard the gospel, they thought it was foolishness. Folks, we live in an Acts 17 world. When you go out and you give your testimony and your witness we don't have an Acts 3 world to deal with anymore because we do not have a common denominator. We live in a world where they say there is no sin. We live in a world where everything is relative. We live in a world where they, we wonder why that we have campuses that are filled with violence and death and suicide. And the reason is because we've had professors in classes teaching our young people that their lives are worthless that they come from nothing, their lives are meaningless, that they're no, they have no more value or meaning than a maggot in a garbage pan. 
And as my uncle used to say, the value of a tablespoon of warm spit. They are taught from their earliest life that they are worthless. When we remember back, and those of us who are here tonight can appreciate hearing uh, uh, Jerry Falwell 30, 40 years ago, whether we agreed with Jerry or not in all things, he did say something very significant. He was criticized so roundly, I'm sure you remember, because he talked about the end of the nuclear family. Remember that? And they said, oh, don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. This is the new way. This is the way for the future. We can have one-parent households. We can have households where one person can take care of it. We have daycare. We have ways of taking care of that. Well, 40 years later, what do we have? We have a society where single-parent households are the, are the norm. And we have a society where children from single-parent households are immediately at a tremendous disadvantage. Statistics don't lie. But yet, do we hear anyone saying, oh, you know, Jerry was right. I haven't heard one time that anyone ever confessed to the fact that the failure of the nuclear family has cost this country dearly. So we have a very interesting thing that we have just found out. And that is this picture in in Exodus chapter 12 has just said and pointed to our Lord by not having the Passover, the date that Israel would date their calendar would date from the beginning of the month of the Passover rather than the Passover night itself is a picture of Christ where our date in the world is dated from his birth and not his death. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, God's word says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom, or the things of God, according to John 3.3. We all understand the concepts of cause and effect. Regeneration is the cause. Faith's application of the sacrifice of Christ is the effect. The new birth is the beginning of the new life. Because of this, Israel's new calendar dated not, as I said, from the Passover itself, but from the beginning of the month in which it occurred. The truth model here is truly awesome. Our calendar dates from Christ's birth and not his death. Israel's calendar was to date from the beginning of the record of the Passover, not the sacrifice of the Lamb. All the years we lived before we became new creatures in Christ are not reckoned to our account. The past is blotted out. Our unregenerate days were so much lost time. Our past lives in the service of sin and Satan were wasted. 2 Corinthians 5.17, God's word says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We need to remember and remind the society in which we live in today that rehabilitation is not the answer. The problem is sin, and we need new creatures in Christ Jesus. In verse 3 of Exodus chapter 12, we receive the first instruction in connection with a lamb. Exodus 12, 3, God's word says, 
Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth month of this, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. A lamb was to be singled out from the flock, separated, sanctified, appointed, or one could say sentenced to death four days before it was actually slain. Christ was marked out for death before he was actually slain. First Peter 1.18, God's word says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He did, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God paid a ransom to save you and me, and the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. It is to this that the singling out of a lamb four days before its slaying points, because four is the number of the world. We have a picture here in the Old Testament. As Israel is about to leave Egypt, we have a picture of our Lord being singled out. They singled out a lamb four days before the Passover. Our Lord was appointed to be our Passover lamb before he was before even the foundation of the world. In verse 4, we are told about the provisions provided by the lamb. In Exodus uh, chapter 12 verse 4, God's word says, "And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. It is interesting for us to note here that the provisions for the lamb only include instructions regarding arrangements to be made because the souls seeking the blessings of the Passover lamb might be too few in number. One may paraphrase this verse in this way. The lamb is is available for as many as seek his shelter. The lamb is never too small for the household, but it is the household that is too small for all who seek the shelter given by the lamb. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. The lamb was never too little for the household. The household could be too small for the lamb. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We need to remember that Christ's death was sufficient for all. The household could be too small but not the lamb. Bring them all in. In verse 5, 
we are told our lamb is to be spotless. Exodus chapter uh, Exodus chapter 12 verse 5 God's word says your lamb shall be without blemish. The sacrificial lamb is described in Leviticus 22 verses 21 and 22 and it says and whosoever and whoever offers a sacrifice to the Lord from the cattle or the sheep it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord. The moral significance of this is obvious. Nothing but a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the requirements of God who himself is perfect. One who had sin in himself could not make atonement for sinners. One who did not keep himself, uh, uh, keep the, one who did not himself keep the law in thought and word and deed could not magnify and make it honorable. God could only be satis- satisfied with that which glorified him. And where was such a sacrifice to be found? Certainly not among the sons of men. No one but the Son of God incarnate, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them, according to Galatians 4, could offer an acceptable sacrifice. And before he presented himself as an offering to God, the Father testified in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Our Lord is the fulfillment of the portrait of the perfect Lamb. As Peter tells us, Christ was a lamb without blemish and without spot. Remarkably enough, as we study this, it is interesting for us to note that when John the Baptist saw and hailed Christ, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Every Jew there knew exactly what John the Baptist said. They understood what he meant. A Greek may have been there and might have been scratching his head. Every Jew knew that that pointed to the Passover lamb and that this was the Messiah, the fulfillment of Exodus chapter 12, standing before us. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jaws dropped when John said that. In Exodus... Chapter 12, verse 5, we are told, Your lamb shall be without blemish and a male of the first year. The age of the sacrifice is here prescribed. It is to be be a male of the first year. The Hebrew phrase is a male, the son of a year. That is, your lamb is to be one year old. Your lamb was not to be too young or too old. It was to die in the fullness of its strength. Christ died for us, not in old age, nor in childhood, or boyhood, or in youth, but in the fullness of his manhood. In the language of messianic prediction, Christ was cut off in the midst of his days, according to Psalm 102.34. 
Let's just take a moment to examine the incredible, remarkable ascent of the Lamb in this passage of Scripture. Just take a peek at this. In verse 3, he is a Lamb. In verse 4, he becomes the Lamb. In verse 5, it becomes personal. He is your Lamb or our Lamb or even more significantly, my lamb. That's scripture. That's amazing. The order here is spiritually significant and will enhance our appreciation of the Lord Jesus, the very cornerstone of our salvation. While in our unregenerate state, Christ appeared to us as nothing more than a lamb. We saw him and as Isaiah 53, 2 says so well, there was no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing special, just a lamb. No discernment. We're lost in trespasses and sin. What does Christ's sacrifice have to do for me? It means nothing to me. But when the Holy Spirit awakened us from the sleep of death, when he made us see our sinful and lost condition and turned our gaze toward Christ, then we behold him as the Lamb. We understand his uniqueness, his matchless perfection. We learn that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, according to Peter in Acts 4.12. I was teaching my class just uh, two weeks ago, that there is a difference between the law, the Ten Commandments, and grace. And the biggest difference is the law was not designed to save. The law was designed to convict. Tina said to me, you know, you can see how dirty your face is in a mirror, but you can't wash your face with a mirror. It takes grace. Finally, when God in His sovereign grace gives us the faith required to receive Christ as our own personal Savior, only when He, when they, when only then could He be said to be your Lamb, our Lamb, my Lamb. When the work of the Holy Spirit has convicted us and made us realize how sinful and lost we are facing an eternity separate from Christ, and politically uncorrect as it may be, to spend eternity in hell. Then we see Christ as our Lamb, my Lamb. And that's what brings us to the altar. That's what makes us realize that there, Christ at Calvary was innocent and that He died for us, the guilty. Each and every elect and believing sinner can say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Last but not least, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have nothing to do with our salvation. It is Christ and God alone that gives us even the faith to believe. In Exodus 12:6, we are told that our lamb was to be killed. And ye shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Death must be inflicted either upon the guilty transgressor or upon an innocent substitute. It's interesting for us to consider here that we are told to bring our lamb four days before the Passover sacrifice. What would happen in your house if you brought a a dear, precious lamb into your house? Can you imagine how much you'd love him? How much you'd cuddle him? How much your children would love him? And what would be one of the first things we would notice? He is innocent. There is no, there's nothing wrong. And because we were told to find a lamb without spot and without blemish. And this lamb loves us and we love him. Imagine the family playing with this little innocent lamb every day leading up to the day when we are told we must kill the lamb for our sins. Then it's blood after having been sacrificed for us, the guilty, was to be taken and sprinkled upon the doorposts and the lintel of the house wherein the Israelites sought shelter that terrifying night. Hebrews 9.22, God's word says, without shedding of blood is no remission and without sprinkling of blood is no salvation. This is important. The two words are by no means the same. The shedding is for propitiation. The sprinkling is faith's appropriation. Noah Webster defined propitiation for us in his 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language. In it, it says, The atoning sacrifice, our Lord Jesus, offered to God to assuage his wrath and render him propitious to sinners. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of all mankind. Romans 3.24 and 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. We hear that so much. Do Do we remember what grace that... By God's love, kindness, we haven't earned a thing. By grace, how gracious. By His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Appropriation, used here, is the acceptance of, of the gift of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and the application of his shed blood for the purpose of redemption from the penalty of sin. Listen carefully. It is not until the convicted sinner applies the blood by faith that it is accounted for him. 
knowledge of Christ's death, his atoning sacrifice for us, is not enough. The blood must be applied to us. John 1, or 1 John, uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, God's word says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, the Holy Spirit says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. An Israelite might have selected a proper lamb. He might have slain the lamb. But unless he applied its blood to the outside of the door, the angel of death would have entered and slain his firstborn. They could have done all of those things. They could have had that lamb in their household for four days and they could have slain and sacrificed him. But if the blood did not appear and if it was not sprinkled on the doorposts and lintel, the death angel would have entered that house and claimed that soul. In the same way today, it is not enough for me to know that the precious blood of the Lamb of God was shed for the remission of sins. A Savior provided is not sufficient. He must be received. It is the free gift of God. If we do not receive the gift, you are not saved. We have all heard it a thousand times, and that is you can miss the heavenly gates and entrance into a, 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 an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ by 18 inches and is the distance from your head to your heart. Without the sprinkling of that faithful shedding of blood in your heart and your repentance and acceptance by faith of Christ as Lord and Savior, you will miss heaven and an eternal relationship with your Lord Savior by 18 inches. There must be faith in His blood, according to Romans 3.25, and faith is a personal thing. Romans 3.25, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. I must exercise faith. I must by faith take the blood and shelter beneath it. I must place it between my sins and the three times holy God. I must rely upon it as the sole ground of my acceptance with Him. In Exodus 12, verse 12 and 13, God's Word tells us, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. When the executioner of God's judgment saw the blood upon the houses of the Israelites, he didn't go in. Why? Because death had already done its work there. The innocent had died in the place of the guilty. And so justice had been satisfied. To punish twice for the same crime would be unjust. To exact payment twice for the same debt is unlawful. In just this way, those within the blood-sprinkled house were secure and safe. It is not merely God's mercy, but His righteousness that is now on the side of His people. Justice itself demands the acquittal of every believer in Christ Jesus. This is where the glory of the gospel resides. Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And why was he not ashamed of the gospel? Hear his next words in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and it is written, the just shall live by faith. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 10, God's word says, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God's eye was not upon the house. It was on the blood. It might have been a lofty house, a strong house, a beautiful house. It may have been a house that was gorgeous and cost great amounts of money to make and may have covered much territory. This made no difference. If there was no blood, the judgment entered and did its deadly work. You and I all know today that it is an axiom of the generation and the world that we live in. When you ask someone, what is your admission to heaven? And if they even admit it, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm sure the Lord will weigh the the good things I've done against the bad things. You hear that every time. Everybody always says it. That's called the way of Cain. That's called work salvation. No, that's not it. Dina and I had the privilege of going to Egypt and Israel. And while in Egypt, we saw a a papyrus that had painted an ancient Egyptian um, scripture, if you will. And it showed the death god who was in charge of Hades. And he's holding up a scale. And on the scale are two things. The man's heart who's on trial and a feather. And and the feather represents his innocence and purity. And his heart represents his his interior self. That who he is. And if his heart weighs more than a feather, then the crocodile gobbles him up and he spends his life in hell. Work salvation is as old as the way of Cain. If there was no blood on this beautiful house, the judgment entered and did its deadly work. Its height, its strength, its magnificence was good for nothing if the blood was not there. On the other hand, 
The house might be a miserable hovel, falling to pieces with age and decay, but that didn't matter. If the blood was on the door, those within were perfectly safe and secure. Also, God's eye was not on those within the house. They might be the direct descendants of Abraham. They might have been circumcised on the eighth day. And in their outward life, they might have walked blamelessly so far as the law was concerned. But it was neither their genealogy, nor their ceremonial observances, nor their works, which secured deliverance from God's judgment. It was their personal application of the shed blood of the shed blood, and that alone. Verse 13, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. To the mind of the natural man, this was consummate folly. What difference will it make, one might ask, if blood be smeared upon the door? The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Supremely true in this, in this connection with God's, is this connection with God's way of salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and 23, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. It is faith, not reasoning, which God requires. It was faith which rendered the Passover sacrifice effective. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch you. Hebrews 11.28 And I remind you again, for by grace he is saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. You know, our church has four invitations that we give. And those four invitations are salvation first and foremost. John three sixteen and 17, our Lord said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the whole world through him might be saved. First John 2, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.16 and 17. And this is very important. And that is, do you know that you're saved? Can you know you're saved? According to Romans 8.16, God's word and Paul say yes. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Do you know you're saved? 
Is there a spirit that testifies in your heart that you know that you're born again? Don't make the mistake of pretending that you're saved. The scriptures clearly teach that the Holy Spirit is as much a person as either the Father or the Son. In Acts 13, 2, he speaks. In John 14, 26, he teaches. In John 16, 8, he reproves. In Titus 3, 5, he regenerates. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he baptizes. In Romans 8, 14, he leads. He produces fruit in Galatians 5, 22. And he empowers and does many other things that require personal action, including bearing witness. A very real evidence that we have indeed been, been saved is this inward witness in our hearts that we are truly born again into God's family. Are you born again tonight? Don't leave this auditorium with a question. The next thing that we have is an invitation in our church and our proud of it is rededication. And that can simply be stated in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we invite you to the altar to come and just pray. If you need to speak to someone, someone will be happy to talk with you. The next invitation we have is baptism. Do you know the Lord? If you do, have you been baptized? Acts 10:14. Peter said, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Have you followed the Lord in baptism? Have you given your baptismal testimony? Colossians 2.12, uh, 2, 12, God's Word says, We are buried with Him in baptism, wherein all see you are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead. Have we followed Him in baptism? Have you? Lastly, this is a wonderful church. We preach the gospel without apology or excuse. And we have an invitation for church membership. We have an invitation for church membership. Would you like to make this place your spiritual home? If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and if you have been baptized or need to be baptized, we'd love to have you be a part of our congregation. This is a loving, wonderful church that bears a wonderful witness to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this evening, I ask you to prayerfully consider, am I born again? Do I know Christ as Savior? Am I sure? Does my spirit bear witness that I am saved? Do I need to rededicate? Do I need to spend a time of prayer in the, in the, uh, at the altar tonight? Do I need to be baptized? And am I looking for a church home? So consider these things tonight. Pastor? Yeah. Yes.